0: Climate change is here. It's happening right now. Sea level rise, stronger hurricanes, prolonged drought, but it's not impacting everyone the same way. In fact, a 2001 analysis from the EPA shows that the most severe harms from climate change fall disproportionately upon underserved communities who are least able to prepare for it and recover from things like heat wave, poor air quality, flooding, and other impacts. NOAA released specifics regarding heat-related inequities last summer. A nationwide study found that 94% of formerly redlined areas, which remain mostly lower-income communities of color, are exposed to higher temperatures than the non-redlined affluent areas. Today, I'm talking to a self-proclaimed recovering politician. Heather McTeer-Tony is a national figure in the areas of environmental policy, public service, diversity, and community engagement we talked about a very important topic, climate change inequity. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you're listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do.
1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: Heather McTierotoni is an accomplished environmental leader and a public servant who has dedicated her career to advancing sustainability, public health, and climate justice. Her list of accomplishments is so extensive. She was the first woman and the first African-American to be mayor of Greenville, Mississippi. Elected at 27 years old, she was also the youngest person in that position. Currently, she's the Vice President of Community Engagement at the Environmental Defense Fund. I loved talking to Heather. Her warmth, her positivity, and passion, it gave me a lot of hope for the future. If you don't know the difference between equality and equity, or if you aren't sure how climate change is discriminating, stay tuned. This episode is for you. So sit back, relax and get motivated as we go off the radar with Heather Mctier tony I wanna get a little bit of background on you and uh, how you came into the climate arena because you don't come from the science background, correct?
1: Absolutely not. I stayed away, stayed as far away from the science building in college as humanly possible. Uh, That was not my strong suit. But I did um, find that even in places of environment and climate that we talk about, there's a huge people element that's missing. So um, I came to this from the people perspective and people side. I thought that all environmentalists, seriously, all environmentalists and and climate advocates were um, white people who were vegan and bird watchers and you know, hug trees and War Birkenstocks. That was my image, you know, um, because that's what that's what I saw. Um, that's a lot of the imagery that was on Google when you googled what What does an environmentalist look like? What does a climate activist look like? The images were very singular, and I didn't see myself in it. So I never identified myself as being a part of that community, but. After working in public service, I served as mayor of Greenville, Mississippi for two terms, 2004 to 2012. And then at EPA, the way that I got there was through um, Lisa Jackson, who was a former administrator, saying to me, uh, you know, you're doing environmental justice work, right? And it was just really eye-opening because I thought that working to improve the streets and do economic development had no environmental connection at all, when in reality, um, the strength and support of our environment and the stability of our climate really undergirded everything that we were trying to do. So I I like to to think of the way that I came into this work was definitely through people and having a people focus. Which is something that's lacking with a lot of scientists. So that's a great skill to have. Scientists are people too. I think just reminding ourselves that each of us live in community, we're part of community, even communities that don't look like ours still have connective tissue that aligns with how we care for our environment and what that means for how we think about economic development and healthcare and education and safety and all the other... Um, parts of living in community, yeah, you know, I think it's it's very critical that, regardless of our profession and vocation, scientists or not, we still connect to those pieces of community and environment
0: and certainly those two things come together when we talk about climate change inequities, the difference between inequity and inequality. Can you describe that?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And oftentimes we get these two confused inequity and uh, inequality. So you think of it, um, it, it, there's often a image that's seen of uh, three or four people watching a baseball game over a fence. And uh, if everyone has the same, uh, is sitting at the same level, if everybody's given the exact same kind of box, the short person still might not be able to sit, see over the fence and the tall person is just elevated up a little higher. Um, then if you give everybody different levels of boxes so that they can see equally, it puts everyone on a, on the, the same view level scale, but it's, it's showing that there's different levels of resources that have to be provided. And I think that's one of the best ways to show the differences between equity and inequity. And then again, equality being, is everybody getting things uh, in the same manner in the same fashion and it having a similar impact. Um, And that's something that is brought throughout addressing climate justice, addressing environmental justice or environmental injustice is that we have to think of how are we addressing historic inequities? So historically, how communities have not received the same level of resources. Some communities get a little more than others because of a number of reasons, but none of the least of those being race and discrimination. And then how can we ensure equality moving forward so that As we look to the innovation of climate change and we look to the new science and technologies that are coming out, we assure that all communities are receiving future, the information and resources equally. What
0: are some historic systemic practices that are in place making climate change inequitable right now?
1: I think one of the most obvious ones is infrastructure. Um, throughout communities across this country, black and brown communities, minority communities and communities that have for years been marginalized for these reasons, discrimination and unfair uh, practices in the U.S. have suffered from um, infrastructure, your streets, your sewers, your pipes, sidewalks, the base infrastructure, roads, bridges. Um, They have suffered for a lack of resources in these communities. And so that is one of the most glaring problems that we've seen because it's one of the first places that when a climate crisis hits, it deteriorates. So let's look at the Gulf of Mexico area, South Louisiana, South uh, Texas. These are communities that for years have not only been subject to racial discrimination in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, but they're also communities that did not receive the same amount of resources that their white counterparts received or more affluent areas received. And these are the same communities that are on the front line of the climate crisis. So the first strong wind that comes through, it's going to break down the roads, bridges, schools, hospitals in these spaces. And it happens more and more often. Another area that we see a lot of discrepancies in housing. Uh, housing discrimination is uh, clearly a part of our history. If we go back and look at line districts and the federal government's role in isolating black and brown communities, putting transportation and highways through communities, walling them off, creating these barriers. Um, it also created uh, zones where you s- where where more manufacturing facilities were located. So if we look at the uh, old red line maps from the 30s and 40s, and uh, can begin to identify where loans weren't given because of the color of the people who were living there, and where we can see the um, placement of manufacturing facilities like coke plants and uh, petrochemical facilities and landfills, that has a direct correlation today to the environmental health of communities. Those are the same places with high rates of asthma and cancer and other health disparities that come from the air quality. So these are just two examples, infrastructure and housing, and there are many others that can uh, lead us to see where we need to invest more money to rectify these historic environmental injustices and at the same time uh, invest funding to propel and help them catch up to make sure they're a part of climate innovation and uh, the green energy economy that we know is going to be very fruitful across this country.
0: You mentioned the Gulf of Mexico area.
1: What other parts of the country do you see most vulnerable? There are all parts of the country that have different kinds of impacts. The um, Gulf Coast area, so South Texas, South Louisiana, that's where Cancer Alley is located. Cancer Alley is uh, a stretch of corridor that is uh, full of oil and gas operation, petrochemical facilities. And if you ever, ever been to like Baton Rouge and St. James Parish and St. John Parish, Louisiana, when you drive in, you can just see all of these facilities on both sides of the roads and people's houses in between there. And that is a community that has long suffered from uh, environmental injustice and now more and more economic crisis, because... The hurricanes that have uh, increased in both intensity and number that come up through the Gulf of Mexico area and are hitting these coastlines um, back to back to back. So um, that's one kind of problem. We can look or ton now to Jackson, Mississippi, Flint, Michigan, and other places that are dealing with water crises, which is another tremendous uh, issue of not providing clean water to communities, huge communities of residents, um, and just that access to water. Uh, if and those are predominantly Black and Brown, predominantly Black African American communities. I think if we turn and look out west into some of our indigenous communities, we. Can identify um, not only wildfires that have really exasperated over the past few years and then destroying a lot of property in the space, but drought uh, and the significant impacts that that has to crops and food supply, as well as water supply. Uh, and, and so, you know, we could go all around the country and pull out. Here are significant environmental and climate impacts um, that are happening everywhere, but they're happening to vulnerable populations, so marginalized and then minority communities. They're happening to them in a more extreme fashion and faster. Well, this is
0: a lot um, to, you know, take in and deal with. Can you give me a little bit of hope? um, Maybe some tangible solutions that are in place that are where you're seeing a difference where there is good movement
1: forward in this effort? It's the place that I like to live in, right? There's enough enough climate. uh, We're all going to you know, hell in a handbasket out here.
0: <laughs> right? It's depressing.
1: Right. There's plenty of that. So where's so the solution? Where's the solution? <laughs> where's the flip side the that? That's the space I like to live in. Because there are a ton. I mean, the, the fact that um, we see resiliency from these communities time after time after time should give everybody hope that not only are people um, willing to continue to fight and do what they need to do to protect their communities. It is about sustainable protection for generations to come. So um Emily, I don't know how old you are, but I remember when I was a teenager, the big thing was acid like acid wash jeans. And I remember acid I might pie. be a little younger than you oh, yeah. <laughs> I watched Two and O, but I wasn't quite old about it. I'm gonna pretend like I read about it, but <laughs> These were like the big things, acid wash jeans. And I remember uh, acid rain was a thing. And um, there were lakes literally on fire, water that was uh, burning in communities in this country. And today... If I were to ask my children what acid rain is or what does it look like or what do you think it is? They have to pause for a second. It's something they've read about. And I think that in and of itself should give us hope that there's stuff we've done. Like we've had the ability to fix some things um, through regulation, through education and through creating pathways to use the science that our amazing scientists come up with and then uh, turn that into sound policy that helps us to protect human health across this country. And so the awareness of not only the climate crisis as a significant issue uh, around the world has also created um, solutions that are working. They're really working. Uh, we don't know those those terms today like we did 20 some odd years ago. <laughs> you take a look at all of the different opportunities and innovation that's out there. I mean, the future for electrification, it's not just um, fascinating to see all of the companies that are coming up with different cars and what they can do and and um, how sort of futuristic and cool it can be. It also makes a lot of money. These are job generators. Um, it, it's a new job field to now um, be able to work on EV vehicles. Uh, the number of venture capitalists that are investing in climate innovation is huge. And and these are places where you don't even have to go and try to get a new degree. Because remember, I don't do science. I'm not <laughs> trying to go back to school and get a science, anything. Um, I am grateful for those scientists who are doing that. But, you know, there's roles out here for people who are teachers and who are psychiatrists and psychologists, the accountants that are going to be necessary to help put businesses into play. Every place there's a new clean energy project that's located in a community. Uh, Think of the number of hotels, restaurants, uh, EV filling stations that will be necessary to, to match that. Um, So there are a number of different opportunities that are out here that make this a absolutely phenomenal new industry and really a transformative time uh, to create both wealth and improve health throughout um, our nation's local cities and towns.
0: Great. Um, You have a book coming out. I do. I do. Tell me about
1: it. In fact, we're... Actually, have an advanced reading copy. Hey. was <laughs> beautiful. Uh, so I'm no, I'm really thrilled about. It. I'm excited. It's called "Before the Streetlights Come On: uh, Black America's Urgent Call for Climate Solutions," and it is a book that talks about not only the experiences and how Black Americans have um, felt climate change, but also how it impacts every facet of our life. And if we look to some of these stories and look to some of the solutions that we do every day, we can see intersections and really lead in some spaces. So in the book, I talk about um how climate change intersects with police brutality, for example. That was um one of one of the the hardest chapters to write because um I wrote it during the time that our country was dealing with the crisis of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. And as the mother of two boys, two black sons, it was a pivotal moment of awareness. Um, But it also made me think of how um, climate change is a part of that. How heat um, is aspiration of heat in communities of color create places where people get more agitated. Like when it's hot, people are more likely to be upset. <laughs> and let's add to that, that um, places that have a lot of concrete. So sometimes housing developments, a lot of sidewalk, no green spaces. Um, they are definitely warmer. So the place where George Floyd died, that concrete and asphalt was about 10 degrees hotter than the neighboring community that had green spaces. So these are elements that impact not only how we experience this, but we can identify solutions to also lower the temperature, but decrease the amount of violence and improve public safety in communities. So that's like some of the types of things that I talk about. And I really love the fact that in each section, I called it before the streetlights come on because that's like the time you had to get in the house. Yeah, we <laughs> you know what you got to do before the streetlights come on, and that's where we are with climate crisis. There's certain things we need to do now before those streetlights come on. So each section has a before the streetlights come on uh, action list of to do. I can't wait to read it. That sounds amazing. Absolutely. You can find it at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or just go to com. <laughs> Perfect. I'm grateful that we're having this conversation and really urge people to normalize it. Talk about climate and environment. Don't be like me thinking that The only environmentalists were white people, like see yourselves and talk and be a part of the conversation because all of us are environmentalists, whether we know it or not. We're here and we're sharing the same planet. So all of us are in this together.
0: Big thanks to Heather for that enlightening discussion about climate change and equity. Off the Radar is the production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. If you know someone that's interested in climate justice, please share this episode with them. And feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to let us know what you think of the show. You can also suggest new topics for future episodes. This podcast is produced, hosted, and edited by me. Special thanks to Eric Newell and Richard Cook for their contribution. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day.